Transformation, that word, by the way, is wildly abused. It's hard work. It's almost like you have to defy gravity because all the tensions in the organization are pulling it in the wrong direction. And you have to actually unbolt all that and lift it up and push it over to the next state. Wisdom is something that everybody wants. Knowledge, anybody can pick up. All right, welcome to the Supply Chain Show, featuring compelling interviews with remarkable supply chain leaders. Listen in as our guests share their learnings and insights on today's supply chain challenges. I'm your host, Crystal Lee, a principal consultant with Oliver White, teaching companies to transform their business, achieve mind-blowing financial results, and dramatically improve the lives of their employees. This week as our guest, we have Dana Vogt, retired vice president of supply chain and quality from Cummins Inc. Thanks for taking the time to be here with us today, Dana. This episode is a really special one for me. Dana, you and I go way back to the earliest parts of my supply chain career. And I would have to say that not only are you a truly remarkable supply chain leader, but also the most influential one that I've ever worked for. So thank you for being here today. Um, why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about yourself? Um, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest in Columbus, Indiana, um, and grew up in a family of, of Cummins legacy employees. My dad worked for Cummins. My grandfather worked for Cummins. So as a young boy, I remember at nine years old, actually, my dad took me into the 50th anniversary and I got to go inside the plant for the first time and see where daddy worked. And I absolutely fell in love. Uh, I remember walking in a place called Columbus Engine Plant and we were at the test cells. Uh, but as a nine-year-old boy, to see a big engine like that running by itself in what looked like a closet, it was awe-inspiring. So I told my dad at that moment, that's where I want to work. And he thought that was ridiculous because it was one of the hardest places in the plant to work. Um, but I had a singular focus going through the rest of my schooling. And then I went to Purdue and I majored in organizational leadership and supervision because what I wanted to do was to lead people in engine tests. And while you think that a certain amount is inspired by our creator, um, I think I was called to do that because it was a great lesson for me. I graduated from Purdue. Uh, I worked a couple of summers as intern in engine test um, and then hired in um, a little bit after graduation as a full-time foreman, they called it, on engine test. Now, the funny thing about this was is that most everyone on engine test, it was like the most senior place in the plant. Everybody was my dad's age. And so I had about 75 dads and they called me the pup. Um, I guess because I followed some of the older guys around, I would hang out mo mostly with the hourly guys and they would teach me how to test engines and stuff. And so they'd say, come on, pup. And a few of them are still alive today. And when I bump into them downtown, they still refer to me as pup, which is, <laughs> is kind of cute and kind of fun. Well, anyway, I started out there. When I would see that engine come to life for the very first time, um, it still gives me goosebumps to think about it because you think of the thousands of hands, the thousands of suppliers, the thousands of people on the line putting it together and then to watch that thing breathe life and know that it's going to live way over a million miles. That, that for me is, is a remarkable thing. I'm married and I've got two daughters. They came along at the same time um, that I worked in engine test. And so I raised my babies and I raised my career in that place. I stayed there for quite a few years, I think seven or eight years. And then my, I guess my, intensity and my drive to learn and improve caused the company wanted to invest more in me so they continued to increase my responsibility over time and it felt like awe-inspiring. 
you know, I couldn't believe one, I was managing 75 people. But then when I looked up about seven or eight years later, and it was 350 to 400, I thought, I'm having a hard time remembering everybody's name. <laughs> uh, but I did, by the way, that's the first thing, remember everybody's name. Um, but I grew my career, both in manufacturing to begin with, and in quality. Those two things are synonymous for me. And so I, I had a good start in my career. And then later in life, um, got the opportunity to put all the components of supply chain together um, and became a supply chain leader. And I was a supply chain leader, global supply chain leader for Cummins. Um, I managed all of the engine plants around the world um, and I got to visit all of them and really enjoyed that. And then in my last five years with the company, uh, I was the quality leader for the company and have had a great career. Like I said, I'm married. I've got two kids, uh, both daughters, uh, beautiful. They're married to two great guys. They're my new sons. I've got three grandkids. My, my life is about as good as you can get. That's awesome, Dana. Thank you for sharing that. I think back to when we first met, um, you were in the middle of that journey. So you had, you had left um, the engine plant by that time and had moved into your leadership positions. And I was at a, um, an inflection point in my career that ended up um, leading me to where I am today. I was, I was coming out of, of all places, HR. I was on the, on the people and organizational culture side of the business, um, doing transformation work there. And I had this big idea that if I was going to lead at this company, that I needed to know what we made and how we made it. And so here was this kid coming out of HR, showing up at your doorstep to your office saying, I want to go work in the plant. And you were one of the people that took a risk on me and threw me into some of those same situations that you talked about. I remember leading the test cell and being in machining and assembly. And one of the first places that you sent me was to uh, the Jamestown engine plant and yep. had the opportunity to, to do some work there. And so um, looking back on that, I still remember and often tell people the very first thing that you taught me, which has impacted my leadership throughout supply chain my, my whole career now, and that is safety, quality, delivery, and cost in that order. In that order. In that order. There was no compromising. <laughs> there was no compromising. And you said, when you're faced with a decision, if you know your priorities, if you know your values, then decision-making is easy. And so I, I kept those priorities with me throughout my manufacturing days, but also as a leader. I would tell you that it's easy to say what you just said. And the people on the shop floor, the people that work in supply chain, they've got a special sixth sense where they can detect a phony. Yes. And so if you say safety and quality come before delivery and cost, and then you act a different way, their detectors go off. And so it's pretty easy to say that. I think it is difficult to live it because you really have to think that these are your principles. Yeah. These are your values. And for me, safety, like for instance, is a value. Yeah. I feel personal about it. And therefore, every action that I would take, that would be my first lens. And I did some pretty significant things in my career, made some pretty tough decisions, shut entire plants down, shut entire supply chains down because a single employee was at risk because of, in that case, a turnover station. And I just won't compromise on that. And I think um, you probably downplay the first time we met. Um, one of my very best friends from HR had called me. He called me and said, I've got a unique lady and she really wants to change careers out of HR. And I've tried to dissuade her from doing that. She wants to be in the supply chain. She wants to be in manufacturing. And, and can you help her out? Because I know you'll do the right thing. And so I I said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet. And I remember the first time we meet, 
maybe a lesson for all supply chain leaders to think about is when you see people, you can make judgment calls because in my mind's eye on what a shop floor person looks like is quite different than what you look like. And my first inclination, well, you know, she just wants to pad her resume with 12 or 18 months worth of experience so she can go on to be an HR leader. But then you started telling me your story. You were sincere. Um, you were passionate about wanting to do it. And so if you remember, I threw down a challenge and I said, well, <laughs> I do. if you're so interested, then why don't you go talk to your supervisor and give you a couple, three weeks off and I'll give you a test drive in a plant and see how you like it. And I, it wasn't 24 hours later. That you, had <laughs> you were ready. You were in it to win it. And that spoke volumes to me. And long story short, it was a great improvement effort. You did a really good job. And then I started getting notes. Can we hire her? Give us account <laughs> approval. We want to do something. Um, and they wanted you in. And, and that was a moment for me to say that we found a winner. And, and you and I got to work together in several locations. I think the next stop was in Charleston, South Carolina. And, yes. and you were working there. And I remember late night coaching sessions where you would call and ask me questions on things that seemed big then, probably seemed small to you now. Um, but nonetheless, are, is part of your maturing journey. So Yes, you and I go way back, and, and I've got a lot of affinity uh, for you, and I think that you are, you are a remarkable lady. Well, thank you, Dana, as I said in the beginning, and, and meant um, wholeheartedly that um, you are the most influential if, when I, in my career. When I tell my story, you're part of it. Um, you're always part of it, and um, it's, it's remarkable to think about how influential supply chain leaders can be on people and not just companies. So So often, we talk about what does it mean to be a remarkable supply chain leader? You know, where are their accountabilities? Who are they responsible to? And oftentimes we talk about the company and the customers and all those things are true, but there's this other side of responsibility for supply chain leaders. Uh, and it's where we've been talking, which is the accountability to other people. Can you talk to us about what you think it means to be a good supply chain leader and how that concept maybe has evolved for you over time? Normally I think, people would try to say something smart, um, maybe complex. My answer to that is pretty simple. You've got to ask yourself the difference in definition between leader and manager. And for me, I, everything works as a metaphor in my head. So I'm always trying to associate things. You'll remember my stupid stories and it's my way of learning and leader somebody that's out front on the front line and charging whatever the problem is and people willingly following because they believe in that person they see that you're willing to go first they see you as brave they see you as protecting them that you you have not their back you have their front and and a manager I associate that, by the way, leader, if you ever watched the movie Braveheart with Mel Gibson? Yes. Leader. Right. He was right on the front row, charged. Right, right. Now, he wasn't in the back saying, I hope you guys do good today. He was on the front lines. The definition of manager, which is a good thing, everybody has to start as a manager, but then you aspire to be a leader. Um, manager is a little bit like a shepherd. Um, got a big stick. And every once in a while, when people get out of line, you tap them in the head with a stick, but you're behind them. 
and you're trying to steer a group in a direction. And I guess for me, when I think about a good supply chain leader, one that's truly um, a change agent, um, use your term remarkable, uh, I think it's somebody who is out front, somebody who has a very clear vision of what needs to happen and is able to articulate that vision, get people excited about it, and then charge and be in it to win it. A little bit like my story I told about um, you working at Jamestown for the first time. Get your fingernails dirty. Mm -hmm. Just because you're a leader and you're at some salary grade doesn't mean you're not a worker. Right. And so I would suggest roll up your sleeves and lead. And if you're taking off in a direction and you say charge and you look behind you and there's nobody there, then you've not done enough work on change management or your vision is flawed or you haven't listened as much as you should. You know, there's a lot of professions, I suspect, that you can be a singular success or a hero. Like you can discover, you know, the cure for COVID-19 or you can, you can, you know, do some algorithm statistically and figure something out that nobody else has figured out. But supply chain is a team sport. And so I think to be truly remarkable, um, you have to be a leader. I also think that you can't just be a supply chain leader. You can't transfer out of accounting, for instance, um, with no training, no mentorship, and understand supply chain. It is a learned skill. Uh, and so I think there are some critical skills. Uh, there's some critical processes. You know, the company that, that you're with, Oliver White, um, taught me a lot about that over several years um, and augmented my skills. Um, but I would just suggest to you that, that there are skills that you have to have and they're basic skills. But if you're a flawed manager and not a leader, then you can be the most book smart person in the world and you will fail. Um, if you're a transition from manager to leader and you invest yourself in critical skills, um, then I think you can be successful. And one of the secrets, by the way, for all of you that wonder about, do I have all the critical skills? You don't have to, actually. You gotta know what the issues are but then your job is to go recruit a diverse team of people who have all of those skills and be leader enough to close mouth, open ears, ask the question and have them show you. And I'm telling you, it is the, it is the weirdest thing I've seen in my career. When people get to be leader, they think they need to talk all the time. And so I think surrounding yourself with smart people who are different than you um, makes a big difference. And that's, as you remember at Cummins, we talked about diversity. And diversity really works. And surrounding yourself with people who think different than you, look different than you, are from different places, since supply chain's global. You know, you, I don't, I didn't grow up in China, but I've got some really, really good friends in China. And they sat right to my, my right-hand side. And when we're talking about something that impacts China, I close mouth, open ears, listen, and then we can decide. So I think being a good leader, having those critical skills. Um, the last thing I would mention as a supply chain leader that's truly remarkable is focus. People need to know what it feels like to win. As supply chain leaders, go pick something and have relentless focus on that. So I think being a leader, not a manager, having critical skills and surrounding yourself with people that do and ability to focus relentlessly. Um, because transformation, that word, by the way, is wildly abused. 
it's hard work. It's almost like you have to defy gravity because all the tensions in the organization are pulling it in the wrong direction. And you have to actually unbolt all that and lift it up and push it over to the next state. But once people understand that they can achieve those things, one, you're even a more invested leader, but now you've got people with that feeling on, here's what it feels like to win. And when people win, they want to win more. They don't want to go back to those days where, you know, I'm just a loser every day. Right. It's strange, Crystal, because uh, people can actually get used to that, used to losing, because it's easy. Blame it on somebody else, make excuses, do whatever you got to do. But it's not me. I'm going to go home on Friday. I'm going to feel okay. Well, they really don't. They're just saying that. They really don't feel okay. When you look at sports teams, when you look at business teams, when you look at companies that have truly transformed, they've created a winning spirit. And somebody at the core of that was a very focused leader that had critical skills, a diverse team, and was able to help lift it up and defy gravity. Where did you get that from, Dana? That, that sense of transformation, that sense of leadership. Who were the remarkable leaders in your life as you were developing your career? Who did you look to for guidance and insight and inspiration? There, there are a couple of people. I had a, a plant manager. His name was John Yoder. John was a silver-haired and a kind of twilight of his career plant manager. And you could feel his presence when he walked in the room. He absolutely never spent any time in his office. In fact, I modeled most of the rest of my career on John. And he walked around and talked to people. He called it managing by walking around, which seemed kind of simple, but he really gathered a lot of information. He had people follow him wherever he would go. In fact, to this day, um, I feel emotional talking about him. He, he left, to give you a date on this, um, he left in December of 1995. He retired just abruptly. Just he called me up. He called me Danny Boy. He said, "Hey, Danny Boy, um, today's my last day. Uh, I want to tell you I really liked working with you. Um, um, have a good one. Stay focused. All those things." And I bumped into him actually at a funeral of a mutual. Was his daughter-in-law actually Lisa Yoder, who I also worked for. God rest her soul. I bumped into him, and it was almost like the kid in me come back out. This was just three or four years ago, because I saw, I saw the man that lived the values and everybody just revered him. You know, everybody wants to be liked. He just didn't do popular things. He did really hard things, but he did it in a way that showed that he cared and empathized with people. And, you know, I'd like to invent some of these things, maybe write a book about this thing on, you know, it's safety and then I learned all that from John. I learned the difference between knowledge and wisdom from John. And wisdom is something that everybody wants. Knowledge, anybody can pick up. Wisdom, that transcends. That's a person that I would mention. And then the second person that I would mention, and I've got thousands of names to attach to it, are the people that do the work every day. Absolutely, I truly love the people that I've worked with. In the plants, in material planning, in purchasing, um, in logistics, I, I love those people. I, and I spent a lot of time with them. And, when I retired earlier this year, my wife noted, because I, I guess when you have a 36 year career somewhere, you make a lot of friends, uh, make a few enemies, by the way, <laughs> um, but you make a lot of friends, um, yeah. over 
of the people that sent me well wishes, cards, those sort of things um, are, are hourly. And I guess it's a morbid thought on what would people say about you at your funeral. Um, so we'll back it up one step and say, what would people say about you on your retirement? I didn't, I didn't work towards that end, but that was, that was how it played out. And so I would say some people that influenced me were the, were the hourly people. And I've, I've got one quick story to tell, um, and it speaks to both John, who I mentioned earlier, and then the hourly people. We had a bad quality problem on the assembly line back when I was building N14 engines, which was kind of the bread and butter at the time for Cummins. And having that line shut down is like somebody shutting down the heart. But we had a problem and we were blowing up engines and engine tests and there was a key supplier issue, something had changed and we had located what it was, but now I had five or 600 engines that were built that were contaminated with this thing. And John, was in Portland, Oregon, visiting Freightliner. And being on the West Coast, I had to wait till he was done for dinner in order for me to talk to him and tell him what was going on because he left me in charge. Old Danny boy was in charge of the plant. And I asked John, I said, uh, it was 10 o'clock at night or 10.30 and I explained the whole thing to him, to him and he listened and he asked me how my family was and some other stuff and I think, for crying out loud, John, we're in the crisis mode here, stay focused on what I'm telling you about. He said, well, the first thing I want you to do is to calm down. The second thing I want you to do is to go ask the people what they think we ought to do. Now, mind you, this assembly line had 700 people on it. Who do you want me to ask, John? Well, ask the people. Long story short, he, he was relentless. He was not going to let me back up. So next day at 7 o'clock, uh, little Danny boy, um, doing something unsafe, by the way, I was in a lift basket, you know, the, those wire tainers that you get parts in. Right. I was in one of those wire tainers and I had a fork truck driver lift me up about four feet. And there I was with a megaphone. Now, safety violation. I, I would kill somebody if I caught him doing that today, but it seemed right for me at the time. And I said, here's the situation. Here's what we got to do. I've got all these bad engines quarantined and we're going to have to we're going to have to um, build new ones, but we don't have parts to build new ones um, because, I, you know, we, we didn't order them and we were pretty lean on inventory. And I want to ask you, what should we do? Now, put yourself, a thousand people feels like a basketball game to me, but right. a lot of people standing there looking at you and people started talking. And I let it, I let it go for about two or three minutes. And people were talking to each other. They were seriously considering what should we do. And a guy on the front row his name was Harold. He said, Dana, years ago, we had a similar problem and we ran the assembly line backwards because we've got all the wrenches. We just have to flip from forward to reverse and we can disassemble everything, get to the point where we got the bad thing out. It was an oil cooler and we'll build them forward again and we won't have to order all the new parts. And even today, when I say that, I get that uh, raised hair feeling because it was brilliant. And here we were. I had to explain it to the superintendent why we were running the assembly line. <laughs> I had to get maintenance to come and, and change the electric motor so it ran backwards. It worked beautifully. Now, I will tell you, I learned a lot in that. Like, we don't have material storage and stuff. You're not supposed to run an assembly line backwards, so I'm not going to suggest that. But that was the thing that allowed us to be successful, and we turned the whole plan around in three days. Here comes John in, and he says, Danny boy, what'd you do? And I said, I run the assembly line backwards. 
who told you to do that? I said, well, Harold did. Pretty smart. Yeah. And I, I, that's when you ask me, it's John, but it's those people because they know the answer. And if you just give them a chance, again, close mouth, open ears, you'll get the answer. Another John Yoder lesson, he said, if you can shape what people talk about at the dinner table, then you know you're inside their heart. Because if they're home explaining to their, their husband or their wife, you know, then, then you know you're in their heart. Dana, let's talk about a time that you captured the hearts and the minds. So you talk about successful transformation. I, I love the analogy that you use. I love how you said it. You, you unbolt it from the ground and you lift. You have to defy gravity to make successful change. Tell us about the most uh, remarkable supply chain improvement that you've led that comes to mind. I'm probably the most blessed person in the world because I've got um, several, but the one that I'll talk about is the one that you and I did together. We worked together on. And it's kind of funny how our careers bumped into each other and then we separated and then we got back together. And I wonder if you think that we got back together just because you were available or because I saw your character and I knew your tenacity and I needed help. Back to that, surround yourself with people that are different than you, uh, but bring different skills. You have a lot of skills. And so I think um, it won't mean a whole lot to the people on the podcast on a code name, but we called it Project Freedom. Let me set it up this way. I was perfectly happy in my job in the engine business, managing multiple plants, and I knew all the customers and was quite comfortable. And I walked into my boss's office. Uh, his name is Ed Pence. And Ed is Mike Pence's brother, um, which is kind of funny. I'd met our vice president several times just through the casual acquaintance of working for Ed. Um, and I told Ed, because he was the general manager of the heavy duty business, I said, hey, Ed, I've had some career thoughts. And as soon as you leave, matter of fact, when are you going to retire? When are you going to take a new job? Because I want to take your job. And he said, well, Dana, I hate to be the one to break the news to you, but you're never going to get my job. And I thought, well, I know more about the business, the people, the products, the customers. What's, what's not to love? And he said, well, the problem is to be a leader at Cummins, you've got to have diversified experience. And the only you've grown up in the engine business, and your experience looks like a tree trunk with no branches. And you're not going to be the leader. And you have to leave. And now I walked in at Cummins, when you get rated to one, it's really good. When you get rated to two, it's you kind of did a good job. And when you get rated to three, you did a bad job, right? right? So I walked in at one and I left as a three. Mm. Uh, I thought, you know, he just popped my bubble. I'm not going to get the job. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to get a new job. And so I started shopping for a new job in a different area. And I left my supply chain job at the time and took a quality job in Cummins Turbo Technologies, which is a one of the biggest divisions for Cummins. And it was working for a remarkable leader. His name is Jim Lyons, somebody that I bumped into over time. And again, he was recruiting me. One, probably he also believed in diversity and I had a lot of Six Sigma experience um, and process improvement and the whole business seemed broken and he needed some people to help fix. So he recruited me as quality leader. And yeah, I was a quality leader. I did that kind of seven in the morning till noon but most of my day was spent on working on other problems. And he tried to describe the quality role as kind of a jack of all trades. And he would take me along to meetings. And I remember 
we went to a meeting because we were doing bad as a business. Our quality was bad, which I was working on, and it felt like we had good new products coming along and good field fixes for the ones we had. We had a terrible reputation for delivery. In fact, I would tell you in the engine business, my very worst supplier was Cummins Turbo Technologies. That's right. So you can imagine going to work there, I walked in with a chip on my shoulder. Now I'm the quality leader. So Jim Lyons told me, he says, come on, Dana, we're going to a meeting with his boss. His name was Anant. And, and we're going to explain what we're doing about fixing these late turbos. And I couldn't believe, I was watching the presentation. There were some smart people up there. I'll not name names other than Jim's, but there were some smart people up there presenting and they tried to do a good job. And Anant, he just, he leaned back in his chair and he looked so despondent and disappointed. And he said, you know, there's more supply chain experience in this room than I've ever had on a team before. And you can't fix a simple delivery issue. Why can't you fix it? And he says, I'm done talking. And Anant got up and left. And I don't know about you, but I'm loyal to my leaders, right? So Jim Lyons was like my leader. And right. I saw my leader get spanked. And I felt bad for him, actually. This was about October. So the boys and girls in supply chain worked harder. You know, there was manufacturing, purchasing, uh, marketing, and logistics. Um, and they were all blaming each other. And it was after Thanksgiving. I don't remember the exact date. I was actually going to try to look it up on the calendar before this meeting. But um, it was my last staff meeting of the year with the Cummins Turbo Technology staff. And I saw on the agenda, we, we were in Huddersfield, UK, and I saw on the agenda that we were gonna talk about, they called it arrears. Sound a strange term, but arrears. Um, of course, I made a joke about it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I thought, well, they're gonna present on this. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna be intriguing because even though I'm a quality leader, I'm masquerading as a quality leader, I'm really, um, a good supply chain leader and I'm going to try to help them, right. right? give them good advice. Right. And so they were presenting in the morning and there was three of them. I'd call them the three amigos. They all got up and you know, manufacturing blamed it on purchasing, purchasing blamed it on marketing for selling things we couldn't build. And then uh, it just, you can imagine. And Jim Lyons got exasperated about the whole thing and he broke early for lunch and we all left for lunch. And uh, after lunch, again, I'm thinking to myself, boy, why don't they just fix it? And I was out to lunch with Jim and I said, I don't know why we just don't fix it, actually. I mean, it's, it's not technically that hard to do. And, and um, after lunch, the manufacturing leader, which was a 40-year, hardcore, tough, respected manufacturing leader, stood up at the front of the room and said, I've talked to my other two amigos and we don't know what to do to fix it. And Jim, we're asking you to assign Dana to lead us because he can be independent and he's got all these Six Sigma skills and, and we'll do whatever he tells us to do. We'll not argue, we'll not blame. We just want you to assign Dana. Now, I was sitting there minding my own business, and I was actually planning my Christmas holiday, right? I'm a big deer hunter, and so I was planning on, yeah. well, you can imagine. And then all of a sudden, 
the eyes in the room are looking at me. Now, Jim Lyons set this whole thing up, I'm sure. But when, I'll call him Dave, when Dave looked at me when he said, can you help us? You could just see the pain in his eyes. And I come home, told my wife when I got back, I said, hey, it's going to be a busy holiday for me because we got to assemble a team. Join us next week for the rest of the story on The Supply Chain Show. Our guest, Dana Vogt, will share how he helped turn around a business plagued by longstanding delivery issues through a remarkable supply chain transformation. It's a story I know very well, and it's a good one. Thanks for listening to The Supply Chain Show. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you stream your content. If you want to know more, check out my website, crystallee.net. Until next time.